Great, great. So uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us um, this evening as we, um, as Rabbi Morris joins us to continue his uh, series from Sefarad to the SNP. Last week, Rabbi Morris uh, focused more on the uh, fortune and fate of the Jews in Spain. And this evening, he will take a look at the Jews of Portugal and what's happened there. Um, please try, if you've got any questions, just drop them in the chat box um, and uh, Rabbi Morris will get to them at some point. Uh, otherwise, uh, try and leave all your questions till the end. Um, and I think we're ready to roll. Rabbi, over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Wonderful to be here with all of you again uh, tonight. Uh, and really an opportunity for us to understand what happened in the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, as I mentioned last week, if you want to kind of understand the, uh, the world of the Sephardim afterwards, you need to understand how the events played out in Sfarad itself. Uh, and of course, the most famous of those communities, rightfully so, was the community in Spain. Uh, and we explored last week what exactly happened in Spain, meaning the expulsion didn't come from nowhere. We spoke about kind of events around it. Uh, and tonight I wanna to look at what happens in Portugal because Portugal is hugely important for understanding what we refer to as the Western uh, Sephardim. And by that, we mean the, the Sephardim in, in Italy and those who ended up in, in France and in Holland and in, in Germany and Hamburg and obviously London and in the New World. So basically all, all the Sephardim that ended up in the New World, that the, the S&P, as we refer to it today, um, that's the story of Portugal, as we'll see. But before we get into that, I really just want to take a step back and just kind of quickly review what we said about Spain, because in order to understand Portugal, we're going to have to do a bit of compare and contrast with Spain itself. So, of course, the expulsion takes place in 1492. That everybody knows. But the events that lead up to it last about or begin a century before. So in 1391, there is this kind of popular uprising against the Jews who live in Spain. Many Jews are murdered. Many Jews are, are converted to Christianity. And what you end up having is afterwards this reality that you have converted Jews, conversos, living side by side with Jews, right? Jews who kind of survived the, the uprising. Uh, now, the uprising itself was, was a popular uprising. It wasn't, shall we say, a government-sponsored persecution. In fact, in some places in Spain, um, people were, were punished, even hung, for having uh, participated in the uprising. So you start to get a sense, a little bit of kind of the conflict within, within Spanish society. But as we mentioned, that as you move into the 15th century, you have in the 1440s, the introduction of blood laws, which essentially distinguish between Christians that say, you know, some Christians have full Christian rights and some Christians don't. So if you are a descendant of a converted Jew, even though according to Christian doctrine, you should be a full-fledged Christian, as far as they were concerned, that wasn't the case. And there were still limits on the extent to which you could participate in Christian society. 
And then we get to 1481, they introduce an inquisition. The inquisition is interested in those Christians who are still observing Judaism and the Jews who are assisting them in that. But as we mentioned, the inquisition is not interested in Jews per se. It's interested in the converted ones, whether they are living good Christian lives or not. And then you get to 1492 and the Edict of Expulsion, the Alhambra Decree, which determines that now all the Jews must be expelled from Spain. And of course, the, as we saw, the argument which the edict puts forward is the reason the Jews are being expelled isn't because they're Jews, but the reason they're being expelled is because of the negative influence that they are having on the descendants of the conversos to, in a sense, encourage them to continue to clandestinely observe, uh, observe Judaism. And so you have these series of events that occur over a century, the massacre, the blood laws, the inquisition and the expulsion. And essentially historians look at these events in two different ways. Some look at these events and say, this is all about anti-Semitism, you know, the, the uprising and then the blood laws even discriminating against Jews, even once they convert to Christianity, the inquisition claiming the inquisition wasn't really concerned about, shall we say Christian purity, but was just more interested in persecuting uh, conversos and, and taking their money. Uh, and then of course the expulsion, which expelled the Jews. Or the other view that says, no, it wasn't about anti-Semitism. It was about the complexities of Spanish society. And what you have is, yes, there was this popular uprising against Jews, which was anti-Semitic, but the government did punish some of those people who participated in that. But then you have this problem that you had this huge influx of new Christians, as they were called, into Spanish society. There were all kinds of, uh, shall we say, problems because they understandably weren't very good Christians because they hadn't wanted to be Christian in the first place, but now they were obligated to be. And so you end up having a lot of tensions in Spanish society. The Inquisition was meant to try and root that out. In essence, it, it, it failed while Jews were there. And so the Spanish monarchy said, we have no choice but to expel the Jews. We don't really want to expel the Jews, but we have to expel the Jews in order to ensure that the converted Jews finally assimilate and create a, uh, a more unified society. Take it, I'll leave it to you to decide which, uh, shall we say, narrative of those events are correct. But the end result is that you had many Jews killed, many Jews forcibly converted, you know, many new Christians, uh, as they were called, persecuted, and obviously the Jewish community expelled from Spain. This was a cataclysmic, this was a <laughs> tripping over the words. This was a horrendous um, event uh, in Jewish history. It was the, probably the largest Jewish community in the world at that time. And it caused a uh, Jewish population to be scattered. And as we mentioned, the reverberations of the expulsion last for at least 150 years. Every event that you look at in the next 150 years in Jewish history, uh, major events, seem to all connect back to the expulsion. So I said, just kind of as a point of comparison, we think of the Holocaust, we're about 75 years out. We are still very much in the wake of the Holocaust. Many of the trends within the Jewish world today are still a result, whether a reaction or a fallout to the Holocaust. And what the Jewish community is gonna look like, I think is still uh, to be determined because we're only partway through the, the wave 
um, of the trauma of that of that event. And you can really see that as kind of as a comparison from the impact of the of the expulsion uh, from Spain. Now, just to give a sense, things in Spain during that past century, in a sense, were not all bad. You have an Abravanel. Even Raviosef Caro was born in Spain. He was four years old at the time of the expulsion. And there were other great Rabbanim that were there too. So the Jewish community was continuing to function even during that 15th century. But of course, when they were expelled, they fled in different directions. Some, based on, you saw some of the sources, the Chuvot that we studied last week, some of them went to North Africa. Uh, some of them went to Italy, to places like Ferrara and to Venice. Uh, others went to the Ottoman Empire, right? And eventually to places like Salonika, right? Thessaloniki, uh, and eventually even going further east to, to the Holy Land, right? To Tzfat. Uh, and some of them, as we'll see, went to Portugal, which we'll get to. But what I'll just mention is this caused all kinds of challenges within, shall we say, the refugees from Spain, right? Because, you know, in Spain, you had Jews who lived in Barcelona and Jews who lived in Toledo and Jews who lived in Cordoba. And all of a sudden, you know, they're living in Salonika and they all live together. Now we think of Sephardim as like this, like one thing, you know, the Jews of Spain were one kehillah, but it's not true. Those places in Spain spoke different languages. There was Catalonian Jews, right? There were Jews who spoke what we refer to as Spanish, right? So the point is, depending on where they lived in Spain, they spoke different languages. For most of the history, they were separate kingdoms, right? They only had recently become unified. And in fact, they had different minhagim, different customs in different places. But all of a sudden, they're all living in the same city. And they're opening up their own synagogues. So there was the, the Catalonian synagogue, and there was the, you know, shall we say, the, the, the Toledo synagogue, and there was the Portuguese synagogue, and there was the Cordoba synagogue. And there were all kinds of machloket that arose because they had different minhagim, different, shall we say, standards and religious practice. Uh, and it took a while for them to sort that out, which parenthetically is what the Shulchan Aruch was really about, was about trying to say, you know what, now that we've all been mixed together, maybe we should try to find one standard that all of the former Jews of Spain, even though they were, they were different and different minhagim, that maybe we should just kind of go by majority rule and just kind of create a new Sfarad, as it were. So he essentially created something that in a sense was not authentic because he took you know, in different issues, he ruled in different ways. So in some ways he may have ended up doing the way they did it in Barcelona, or in some case, maybe the way they did it in Cordoba. It wasn't necessarily, you know, one of the minhag of Spain, but he kind of found, shall we say the most, uh, what he thought was the most um, uh, compelling based on the sources among those different issues, which is why the, 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 the Shulchan Aruch, it took a while for him to be fully accepted because what he did was, uh, was, um, uh, quite a striking type of thing. But it caused other kinds of problems too. There was a huge problem with Agunot that, uh, that took place. So you can imagine you have uh, families that were kind of ripped apart because some people uh, had been conversos. Some people felt that leaving Spain was too difficult and they ended up converting and staying. Uh, 
Uh, and so you could have a situation where you could have a couple who leave Spain, go settle in, you know, Italy or in the Ottoman Empire. And uh, unfortunately, the, the husband dies without any children. And so his wife, right, has to do either Yibum or Chalitza. The problem is his brother is back in Spain, which, first of all, you can't really communicate between the two places. And he's living as a Catholic. So what does she do? She's now an Aguna. She can't marry this brother, but she also can't get Chalitza. It caused lots of problems. There's lots of chuvot in the 16th century around issues of Aguna as a result of the expulsion. And then one of the other major issues that you have is practical. The refugees didn't necessarily know where they were going. And as they left Spain, some of them were attacked by pirates in the Mediterranean. Some of them tried to find safe harbors and they couldn't, they were, they were kind of turned away. And we have reports of people starving, trying to eat grass. And we know that some of them ended up going back to Spain. They, they felt like they couldn't survive. They couldn't figure out where to go. And they had no choice but to go back to Spain, which meant they needed to convert to Catholicism. So it was a very difficult, it was a very, very difficult uh, situation. Um, not at all uh, clear cut. And it took, like I said, a long time for the dust uh, to settle. We could do a whole uh, another lecture or two on, on what happens for the Jews that go, that go east. But I'm interested tonight on the Jews who go west, the Jews who take the route of saying, we're not going to go across the Mediterranean. We'll take what really on some level makes a lot of sense. They said, we'll just go to Portugal. Portugal is right next to Spain. The language is very similar. I mean, it sounds a bit different if you hear it, but Portugal, Portuguese is essentially the same language as Spanish. The climate is the same. The, uh, the, the industries are the same. You know, maybe some of them already had family that lived there. So a very large percentage of the Jews of Spain actually just go across the border and go into Portugal, where they were welcomed, where they were, where they were allowed uh, to settle. And it's really the story of those Jews that's, that, that, in a sense, is the story we need to understand in order to understand the history and the origins of the Western Sephardim, or as we call them, the SNP, the Spanish and Portuguese Jews. Now, there was a Jewish community in Portugal already. In fact, Abravanel was born in Portugal, in Lisbon. Uh, he only left as an adult because he got into some trouble in Portugal, went to Spain, and then was acted as, as one of the advisors to King Ferdinand. But there was a Jewish community in Lisbon, not as ancient as the Andalusian Jews, but over the past century or so, there had been a Jewish community in Lisbon um, that was an active um, Jewish community. Obviously, they're inundated by the number of Spanish Jews that move, that move into Spain. Uh, now, just to give a sense, I'm going to kind of go to the end of the story, and then we're going to go back in in order to understand it. But there are Jews, conversos, who are leaving Portugal in the 1700s and going to places like London. Okay, so you're talking about 200, 250 years after this event that we're going to look at, there are still um, 
people in Portugal who know that they are Jewish, okay? By contrast, in Spain, we know from the records of the Inquisition, because the Inquisition continued to be active after the Jews were expelled to root out any of remaining conversos who were still observing Jewish secretly, that basically by 1515, they have succeeded. There is no more secret Judaism going on in Spain. They have snuffed it out as a result of expelling the Jews and having the Inquisition um, give a hard time to any of the conversos that remained. So really Spain, you know, people think of the, again, it's, it's a term which we consider offensive, but it's just a well-known word. So I'm just gonna use it in this context, right? Of the Muranos of Spain. That is a thing that exists maybe in the 15th century while Jews are also living in Spain. But once there's no open Jews in Spain, it doesn't exist there anymore. At least not at first, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what happens. But in Portugal, as we're gonna see, it lasts for centuries. It lasts for centuries. So it's a completely different story um, when we think about Portuguese Jews. So the question is, is why is Portugal different? Why is Portugal different? Even though the Portuguese Jews, as we'll see, will be converted to Christianity too. We're gonna to answer that question um, as basically as part of tonight's um, presentation. And this will be helpful then understanding ultimately these other, uh, these other Jewish communities. So let's just say, I'm just gonna share my screen with you. I prepared uh, some uh, slides. Right, here we go. So over here, just to kind of show you, this is basically what I just described, right? You can see in the red, those are the Jews who are leaving at the time of the expulsion. And they are going to Italy, North Africa, to the Ottoman Empire, right? Ultimately, even to the Holy Land. You then have in the black, the Jews that essentially go to Portugal, right? And then eventually from Portugal, will go to France and Holland the United Kingdom and to the Americas, okay? So that just kind of shows you a little bit pictorially uh, what, uh, what's happening and kind of help, will help you understand what's taking place. It's not perfect, this map, but it's, uh, it's, it's, somewhat, uh, it's somewhat accurate, not completely accurate, but somewhat accurate. So let's take a look at, okay, well, we'll get to this. So let me just tell you, shall we say the initial story. So the Jews arrive in Portugal, in 1492, whew, fantastic, right? They've escaped, they've made it to Portugal. Unfortunately, in 1496, the king of Portugal, his name was King Zhao, John Zhao, uh, issues his own edict of expulsion. Um, why does he issue an edict of expulsion? Well, he wants his uh, son to marry the daughter of King Ferdinand, Queen Isabella. Uh, and to ultimately one day through their descendants to unify Spain and Portugal. And the, the princess of uh, Spain agrees on one condition, that they expel their Jews. She doesn't want to become the queen of a country that has, that has Jews in it. Uh, and so King Zhao wants this marriage to happen. And so he acquiesces, he agrees and says, fine, I will expel, I will expel the Jews from my country. The problem is, is that he didn't want to expel the Jews. Why? Because Jews were essentially the merchant class of Portugal. 
So you think of like ancient, uh, ancient uh, economics, you have the wealthy land owners and you have the poor, shall we say, serfs, right? Those who work the land. But all of a sudden in the 15th century, you have like a new class, this middle class, which are merchants. It's a new thing, right? People who, who, who through shipping and trade are beginning to develop other types of commerce and Jews, that's what they do. They are merchants. And in Portugal, the Christians aren't. It's the Jews that are the merchants, not the Christians. And so he realizes he needs the Jews living in his country. And so what he decides to do is the Edict of Expulsion is issued in 1496. It's to go into effect by 1497. And what they do is they have a date set up where there are going to be boats in the port of Lisbon to take the Jews out of Portugal. But what happens is when all the Jews descend on Lisbon, they are apprehended and they are systematically converted to Christianity. In fact, we know during 1496, there were ongoing efforts. In some places, Jewish children were taken, converted, and their parents were told, if you want your children back, you have to convert too. And so many of them didn't want to lose their children. They agreed. They converted to Christianity so they could get their children back. So systematically over the year 1496, all of the Jews in Portugal are converted. There's some tradition that, you know, like three or four old rabbis, you know, you know, stood their ground and, 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 and they left in 1497. But everybody else, as far as we know, that were in Portugal were convo- converted. They were given a choice. They were forcibly converted to Christianity. And as far as Portugal was concerned, once you've been converted, you now have to live as a good Christian and you cannot emigrate, right? They're not letting them onto the boats to emigrate. And so that's now the situation in Portugal. By 1497, there are no Jews there, but not because they left, because they were all forcibly converted. In fact, it, like in Spain, it caused all kinds of tensions within Portuguese society because, again, some of these Portuguese people knew these, these new Christians were not very good Christians. Perhaps also they were jealous because many of these former Jews, now as Christians, had access to certain positions of authority that they wouldn't have had as Jews. But as Christians, they did have access to them, and it created all kinds of tension with with the Jewish community, with these, shall we say, old Christians and new Christians. And so what ends up happening is in 1506, so just a few years later, uh, it's right around the time of Pesach or Easter. And so this time of year, mid-April, and there is, again, a popular uprising, not against the Jews, but a popular uprising against the new Christians. And several thousand uh, new Christians are killed right, Jews, and this is a, a depiction, uh, a wood carving of that, uh, of that, where you can see some Jews were, were, were burnt alive, uh, and uh, this, this is known as the Lisbon Massacre. If you go to Lisbon today, there's actually a memorial, um, there's a memorial on the site of where, of where, that, uh, where that massacre took place, and that happens in 1506. Now, we know that after that, some new Christians were allowed to emigrate, and it seems they go to the Ottoman Empire and end up going to Salonika. We have sometimes a sense of where people 
ended up uh, ended up going. There's a famous book known as the Shevet Yehuda. We, we know some people who left, um, who did get out, but again, majority of them were not able were not able to leave uh, and were forced to remain behind. Uh, the story there doesn't end there because in 1530s, uh, the son of King Zhao will institute a Portuguese inquisition, right? So we know in Spain, there was inquisition 1481. Portuguese don't have an inquisition. They put their inquisition into place in 1534. And the Portuguese inquisition, actually in contrast to the Spanish inquisition, is far more ruthless, right? You know about the case, the auto defes, right? Those who are found guilty of practicing Judaism and then are repeat offenders, that they, some of them are, are, are killed, right? Burnt at the stake. We, there are far more cases in Portugal than there are even in Spain. Now, you could claim, oh, the Portuguese are more ruthless. Probably it comes down to because there actually was a lot of secret Judaism happening in Portugal as we'll see. So there were lots of people, shall we say, for them to find. Uh, and just to give a sense, and again, we could do a whole lecture about what how the Inquisition functioned, but these auto defes were huge spectacles. I mean, you can see in this picture, you know, you know, hundreds and thousands of people that would gather there, you know, for this kind of parade of, of the uh, of, of the, the culprits. You know, the, those who, who had been caught by the Inquisition and had been either uh, just, just punished or, or some even to be put, uh, put to death. Um, and so this is one of the, the squares uh, in, in Lisbon. That's the, the, the square is still there today. Um, and so it really is a, uh, the, the Inquisition in Portugal is, is very active for a very long time. And throughout the centuries, as opposed to Spain, they will have uh, <laughs> they will have cases against Jews, against Judaizing, um, this kind of clandestine observance of Judaism um, when they should have been, from their perspective, living as good uh, as good Catholics. Uh, what what I'll mention is that uh, you do eventually have. Um, Spanish cases against, can, shall we say, practice of Judaism in the 1600s. Again, it kind of resurfaces in Spain. So why does it resurface in Spain? Well, I told you about this marriage between uh, the prince and princess of uh, Portugal and Spain. So they do get married and eventually their descendant, right, will unify Spain and Portugal. So in 1580, Portugal and Spain become one nation. And that means anyone living in Portugal can move to Spain. And so you have many of these conversos who will relocate from Portugal into Spain, either because of trade opportunities or because maybe they think it's a little cooler in Spain in terms of the Inquisition. And they'll end up setting, settling in places like Seville and in Madrid and even in Spanish territories in the New World, like in Mexico, um, Peru. Uh, and Colombia and so forth. Uh, and, but they will continue to kind of practice secret Judaism and they'll get caught then in Spain. And so then in Spain, you start having more cases again of secret Jewish practice, but in the Inquisition records, it always talks about the ancestry of the person they caught. They're invariably always Portuguese, 
they're invariably all, always Portuguese. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention Portugal eventually just is not happy about this unification and they fight for independence um, in 1640. So, from, so it's, it only lasts 60 years, this uh, relationship between the two countries. And uh, this unification is not remembered fondly in Portugal. In, Portu in Portugal nowadays, they have a, a saying in Portuguese that says the only things that come from Spain are bad winds, because I guess the hot weather kind of blows in from Spain and bad, and bad marriages. Uh, so they kind of, they're not happy about uh, basically how their country was taken over by the Spanish for those 60 years. Be that as it may, um, what I'm really just trying to pull out over here is that Portugal was, was different than Spain. And so the question is, and this is kind of questions I want to address for the next few minutes, is, is why is Portugal different? Meaning why does, shall we say, secret Judaism persist in Portugal for centuries while in Spain it had disappeared, right? What was it about these Portuguese Jews or this situation that made it so different than what happened in Spain. So there's essentially five reasons that are given for why Portugal is so different. And it is a, uh, it's, it's an important, uh, it's a very important difference. I'm just gonna stop sharing for a moment, okay? The um, book that really kind of, shall we say, articulated these differences is this book over here. This is by uh, Professor Yosef Chaim Yushami, blessed memory. And uh, his book was from Spanish court to Italian ghetto. He follows the, the, the story of one person, Isaac Cardozo in the 17th century. But in it, he addresses the, the phenomenon of the Portuguese uh, converso. Um, and what he lays out in, in, the, in basically the introduction opening chapter is the following, is that Portugal was different for the following reasons. Uh, but maybe I'll, but does anybody have any ideas on why what, what would have been different about Portugal from Spain? If anyone has thoughts and they want to unmute and uh, shout shout out a reason, go go for it. You know, it's like that game show. You know, the top five answers. You know, you <laughs> you've got you can get one of the five. Anybody? All right, maybe it's not fair. I've, <laughs> I'm doing a PhD on it. Fine. Okay, so. These, these are the five reasons um, that are given. Number one, who are these people that these, shall we say, Jews or former Jews that are in Portugal? To a large extent, well, let's start with this. The people in Portugal were not given a choice, right? It's not like in Spain, they were told, okay, all the Jews that are there you know, you have to flee. And then most of them that could fled. In Portugal, they weren't given the choice. So the, the first part is to simply say is that the Jews who were in Portugal, maybe they would have been so committed to their Judaism that they would have made the difficult decision to leave Portugal for some unknown destination, but they were not given the chance, right? The Jews who, in a sense, stayed behind in Spain. I'm not saying it was, uh, you know, an easy decision for them, but many of them did leave. So the ones that stayed behind, 
again, I'm not, for some of them, maybe they felt they had no choice. I'm not, I'm not, you know, shall we say judging them. Um, but I'm sure for some of them, maybe they could have left and did it. So maybe it speaks to, in a sense, who the people were, the Jews that remained behind in Spain when they could have left versus when you have a group of people who couldn't leave, who maybe would have been willing to leave. It gives you a sense of perhaps how committed each community may have actually been. So those who remain behind in Spain, maybe they just were kind of like throwing up their hands, those who decided to remain behind. Well, those in Portugal, they never threw up their hands. They were never given a choice. So perhaps from the get-go, they were really committed, uh, committed to it. You take this even further and imagine that those who were in Portugal, while Portugal had a small Jewish community before the expulsion from Spain, a, the majority of the Jews in Portugal in 1496 had come from Spain. So they already had fled once, right? These were Jews who were so committed to being Jewish that they were willing to leave Spain at the time of the expulsion. Not everybody left, they chose to leave. So you get a sense you're already dealing with a population of people who cared so much about being Jewish that they were willing to leave their homeland for a new place. They then didn't have the choice to leave Portugal, but it shows you already who we're dealing with. We're dealing with a community of people who were really quite committed to being Jewish, so much so that they didn't just convert to Christianity and remain in Spain. They actually left and went to a new country. The third part, uh, the third explanation is that in Spain, some Jews, as we said, left, some remained behind. In Portugal, everybody was converted. Everyone, the rabbis, the shochtim, the, 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 the teachers in the school, everyone was converted. So in a sense, their community wasn't ripped apart the way the community in Spain was ripped apart. They all were still together. So even though, yes, now they were Catholics, but they were still unified they were still, in a sense, the same community that they had been beforehand. These were still the same relationships, the same family relations, the same, you know, familiarity with each other, and the same people that you were living next, next door to yesterday, the same people you're living next door today. It's not like in Spain where everything just kind of, you know, was ripped apart in such a difficult way. In Portugal, they were able to remain, in a sense, cohesive um, as, as a result. Uh, you take this a bit further, in Portugal, there were also these distinctions between new Christians and old Christians, and the new Christians tended to live with each other. So they even had, in a sense, their own neighborhoods, you know, their own communities. So they could, shall we say, get away with doing things because they were living amongst each other. You know, maybe they had a tunnel between their homes that went underground or adjoining walls that you couldn't see from the outside, but they could get through to each other's homes through a door between the buildings, right? They lived in their own areas. And again, it allowed them to maintain a greater sense of continuity. The other thing is, is that many of the conversos in Spain, how did they maintain secret Judaism throughout the 1400s? Well, they maintained it because they were living next door to open Jews who were permitted to bake matzot and, to, you know, study Torah and to, to keep up with, you know, the Jewish calendar. Once those Jews left, 
the conversos in Spain didn't have the tools to maintain Judaism themselves because they'd always relied on the open Jews. But the Portuguese Jews never had, shall we say, that luxury. They all of a sudden just went from being Jews to all being Christians. So in a sense, they never got used to relying on open Jews. They had to figure it out for themselves. And so through that, they really developed their own systems and ways for maintaining Judaism, even without any Jews around them, right? Where they had to kind of do it all through uh, kind of secretive ways and, 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 you know, who knows, maybe code words and things like that, where they really had to develop their own kind of system. And the final reason, the final explanation, and this is important, is that in Spain, before you had the expulsion, we mentioned there was already an inquisition, right? Because the inquisition was looking in the converted Jews from beforehand to try to get them to stop doing Jewish practice. And it's because the inquisition wasn't succeeding that the Jews in Spain were expelled. In Portugal, all the Jews were converted to Christianity, but there was no inquisition. King Zhao did not put, set up an inquisition in Portugal. It's almost as if the king of Portugal was saying to them, listen, guys, I don't actually care what you do behind closed doors. I just need you to all be publicly Christians. And it was only his son who put into place an inquisition in the 1530s. So that basically meant that the Jews of Portugal had about 40 years to really create an underground secret Jewish practice without anybody bothering them to do that. So even once the Inquisition was put in place in the 1530s, there already was such a deeply rooted, um, shall we say, crypto-Judaism active in Portugal that even with the Inquisition active, they never were able to fully snuff it out. Um, and you end up having, as a result, a persistent crypto-Judaism in Portugal that lasted for centuries. Now, let's clarify. You do not have, you know, you know, in Portugal, you know, 100 years after it happens. But they don't have access to Jewish books. It's not like they have yeshivot and, and synagogues. And they can't. It's illegal. They can't do that. So what they are doing is, shall we say, a a low-level form of Judaism. Maybe on the 10th of September, they fast. They can't do Brit Milah because that would be quite obvious that they've circumcised. So maybe uh, as they walk into a church, they mutter something under their breath saying that they don't believe, right? Maybe they don't eat rabbit or pig because they know that's not kasher, but they can't do shkita. So it gives you a sense. They're kind of creating a new form of Judaism, doing it as best as they can. But what will basically happen is over those centuries, at different times, at different moments, they will leave. And so usually it's at a time where perhaps there's increased inquisition activity, right? The inquisition is not always running at the same level. It depends who's, who's in charge in a given generation what's happening politically, what's happening economically. And so at different times, the Inquisition will become more interested in what new Christians are doing. Uh, and 
when that happens, often you'll see kind of an escape from Portugal where they will try to find ways to leave. As I mentioned, they are merchants, they have international connections. And when they're left alone, okay, they're left alone, they kind of are living this double life existence. But when there's, you know, the heat is on, they will leave. And so you find in the 1500s, some of them will leave and will go to Livorno in Italy. And then in the early 1600s, they begin going to Hamburg and they begin going to, uh, to, to Amsterdam. In the late 1600s, there are some who are escaping to Southern France, to places like Bayonne and Bordeaux. And then in the 1700s, they're escaping to, to London. And then of course, from all these different places, they're going to the new world, right? Where they kind of as part of the British or part of the Dutch, and they're setting up communities in the new world, uh, in the new world too. And it's this amazing thing that over the centuries it persists. Now you have to appreciate because there were laws distinguishing between old Christians and new Christians, the new Christians essentially continued to marry amongst themselves, right? The term they use is endogamy. And so as a result of that, their yichus is still intact because they're just marrying, new Christians are marrying new Christians, and they generally can make that assumption that they are still halachically Jewish. So when they show up in Amsterdam or in, in London, people there, know, they know each other. In fact, even some of the Jews who go to these places continue to trade back still in Portugal with their cousin who's still there, with their uncle who's still there. So they're, there's a, there's a, they, they know each other. They know what's going on. And they end up, in a sense, creating these Portuguese diasporas outside of Portugal, to the extent, right, I mentioned that the, the Jews or then the conversos were the merchant class of Portugal, to the extent that when you find in records in the 16 and 1700s, non-Jewish records in different countries, and it refers to the Portuguese, it's, in essence, it's talking about Jews, right? If you have, meet a Portugal, Portuguese person outside of Portugal, there's a good chance that they're a new Christian, right? Because they're the ones who are the merchants, in these places. Uh, and in fact, in these Portuguese community, they refer to themselves, right, Portuguese Jewish communities as Nassau, the nation, the Portuguese nation, right? They refer to themselves as Portuguese. That is their kind of like identity. They're Portuguese, uh, Portuguese Jews. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, you end up finding that in many of these communities, the communities are known as Portuguese Jewish communities, not Spanish and Portuguese communities. It's only later that some of them start calling themselves Spanish and Portuguese. But if you go to Amsterdam, they're known as the, the Portuguese Jewish community. If you go to some other places, they're referred to Portuguese. Spanish and Portuguese is a later thing. And that's because, as I mentioned, some of the Portuguese went to Spain when they unified and then later left from Spain to other places. Or maybe some of these communities were joined by Jews from Morocco who had originally come from Spain. So as a way of kind of being more welcoming, they said, okay, we're not just gonna call ourselves Portuguese, we'll call ourselves Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, so that's a little bit kind of that, that story. But while they're in Portugal, obviously it's, it's a watered down Judaism. You know, whatever they know about Judaism is based on oral, now oral traditions, or sometimes the inquisition will show up in a town and say, you know, do you know anybody who's doing the following things? So from that list, they learn what are the things that they should be doing, 
<laughs> because it says, you know, do you know anyone who, who doesn't eat on the 10th of uh, September? So they say, oh, it must be I shouldn't eat on the 10th of September. So they end up trying to like figure out what Judaism requires by what the Inquisition tells them they can't do. Um, some of them read the Torah, they read the Bible, because that's available to Christians, and they learn what it says in the Bible about Judaism, right? About, obviously, the Torah. Uh, and some of them read what Christian writers say about Judaism, and through that, learn about what Judaism is too. So they kind of have their ways of figuring out what Judaism actually is. In addition to once in a while, they can get a smuggled item in. But again, it's very dangerous, because if they're caught, they could have their property taken, they could even potentially um, be, put, be put to death. Um, what I'll say is that it was obviously a huge pressure cooker living for, I mean, talk about from 1497 to 1730, that you have Portuguese conversos leaving and going to places and returning to Judaism. But what's amazing is they don't only go to places and return to Judaism, they build new Jewish communities. I mean, it's this amazing thing. You have this group of people who've been living as Catholics for centuries. They build Jewish communities, right? Now, maybe they get some assistance from other people, but essentially they are creating these Jewish communities from scratch. As I said last week, there are no Jews in Western Europe after 1497. They've all been expelled. So when Jews set up communities in France, in Holland, in, in, in England, they're setting up Jewish communities where there were not Jewish communities already established. And it's this amazing thing. They build Jewish communities across the Atlantic and you have the sense of this huge, shall we say, latent potential, this latent potential that has been under this pressure cooker for centuries. And when they finally are able to leave, there is this great zeal and thirst to now finally, right, be able to live these Jewish lives. It's not always easy. They have sometimes a very difficult sense of identity. A Spinoza comes out of this community, other people. It, it's, it's, it's obviously very complicated um, as they kind of relearn how to live as Jews. But fundamentally, there is this great passion to kind of return to what they call the law of Moses and to live as Jews again, to the extent that they build Jewish communities. And many of those Jewish communities are still here today. I often point out to people that the, probably the longest continuously running synagogue in the world is Bevis Marks here in London, which was founded by Portuguese Jews. There's probably not another synagogue in the world that has been running without interruption since 1700. So it's this amazing thing that these former conversos actually created the Jewish community that today is the longest running Jewish community uh, in the world. But that's, uh, that's just a reflection. I'm gonna just share with you one more thing and then we'll, we'll pause for if anyone has any questions. I just wanna show you some images of some different Portuguese synagogues around the world just to give you a sense of how, how magnificent. So this one, I hope everybody recognizes. This is uh, Bevis Marks, just, just across my wall over here. <laughs> I, live, I live at the synagogue, right? So that's Bevis Marks Synagogue, built in 1701. Does anybody know the next one? Anybody know this one? So this one's in Curaçao. The synagogue is built in, I think, 1720, 1730. Beautiful, San Flores. Beautiful, beautiful Caribbean synagogue. Uh, this one is great. Anybody know this one? I hope some people know it. They're just not saying it. This is Sheriff Israel. This is the Spanish Portuguese synagogue in New York. This is a late 19th century building. Magnificent, very large, active Spanish and Portuguese community. 
This one you guys definitely know. This is known as the Snocha, right? The Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam, right? Kind of the mother, the mother synagogue. And this one over here, I imagine this one people may not know. This is the synagogue in Jamaica, in Kingston, where there was a Portuguese uh, community too. Also very beautiful, beautiful synagogue. So he said they built beautiful synagogues. They, they really, uh, it was a very special community and the community still exists today. But as I point out, well, it, in essence, it's a Portuguese community. In fact, in our services today, we make certain denouncements. Denouncements are said in Portuguese. It's not a Spanish community, it's a Portuguese community. Uh, we're welcoming to Jews of all backgrounds, Sephardim from different communities, as well as Ashkenazi Jews now too. But the point is that the origin of the community was this Portuguese origin. Um, and it has this really complicated, complex backstory, but it ultimately created a great zeal and passion to the extent they were able to build you know, Jewish communities that have lasted uh, for, for centuries. Um, so that is kind of where I want to conclude here. Please God, in the future, we'll have a chance to talk about what they actually created, talk about those communities, talk about the Chachamim, talk about Minhagim. There's lots, there's lots more to talk about, but this is really kind of, shall we say, the, the, uh, the, the backstory to the communities that would then be created you know, in the Ottoman Empire, in Italy, in North Africa, in Western Europe, in the Americas, um, kind of all is built out of the rupture that happens uh, in Spain and, uh, and Portugal. Okay, uh, does anybody have any questions? We have a, we have a few minutes. Uh, I think I think there was a, I think there was one in the chat. If you want to, um... yeah. Let's see. The Jews who lived in Islamic occupied Al Andalus have a tendency towards heading Islamic countries after 1492. It's a good question. I actually you have to appreciate the, all of Portugal, all of Spain was conquered by the Christians by like 1240. The only area that wasn't was not on Al Andalus was Granada, meaning a very very small area. So Jews, I don't even know if there were any Jews living in Granada during those particular particulars. I mean, almost all of Spain was under Christian rule since 1240. Um, so, so I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Again, Granada is just a very tiny, tiny little edge. Do we have any other questions? Please feel free to uh, unmute, ask. Yeah. No, I have a question. The... The Jews who were forced to convert in Portugal, you said that they, they had no choice, they were not allowed to leave. Once they'd converted and were the new Christians, how long was it, for instance, that they, they had to go undercover before they could make their way out of Portugal? So technically, they never really were allowed to. This is saying at different times, they would kind of try and make a way to do that. So you imagine maybe, maybe one person went away on business, but his wife and kids were still, were still at home. So maybe they would say, oh, you know, my wife is joining me for the business trip. In the meantime, he's trying to liquidate his assets ahead of his trip. It wasn't so easy to do. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a simple process. And a lot of times when they did it, it meant, you know, basically financial ruin in order to do that. Sometimes they were more successful, you know, planning ahead so that they could uh, take their assets uh, with them if they kind of had a lot of overseas 
stock and things like that. Any other questions? I have a comment, but not a question. If anybody has a question, I'm happy to wait. But I just wanted to share, I'm a psychotherapist and I was working with someone who in the process of their therapy, he was from Portugal and he was Catholic, but his whole family had this this kind of fascination with everything Jewish and Israeli. And lo and behold, he discovered through various all kinds of research that actually he was a Jew. So talk, your there, talk really I'll, made I'll this you, real life. The amazing thing, you go to Portugal, especially the north of Portugal, Tons of people there have an awareness of Jewish ancestry. You're talking about, I mean, again, the conversos lived there for centuries. So eventually they did mix into the population. And so there is a real keen awareness. In, in fact, there was a big movement of returning conversos even in the early 1900s. Um, that, that process has kind of fallen away to a large extent nowadays. Um, but we do a whole thing on just Portugal, what happens afterwards. But yeah, they definitely, I mean, talking about, you know, over the centuries, every family is going to have some, you know, kind of ancestry somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. It was very interesting. Thank you. Anyone else before uh, we uh, draw this evening to a close? Well, what I'll say, this is a great lead up to Pesach. You know, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, you know, going to freedom. That's what these stories were all about, you know, eventually uh, leaving the persecution, going to freedom, building, you know, receiving the Torah, you know, afterwards, that's the whole thing, you know, we say we didn't become free just to be free, we became free to receive the Torah. So, uh, you know, many of these people, they, they escaped to save their lives and eventually, you know, they refound the Torah and built, uh, built Jewish lives. So it's, uh, I find their, their story to be, to be very inspiring and, uh, and a, uh, good, a good message as we go into to Pesach and uh, celebrating our freedom once again. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Morris. Thank you again. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel you've barely scratched the surface on this important and significant chapter of uh, Jewish history. And uh, really, you know, I personally look forward to hearing more, um, you know, as we, as we delve into the tales of the Jews of Spain and Portugal. Thank you very much. Thank you everyone for joining. Um, stay tuned in the regular channels for, for updates uh, for the next classes and stuff. Um, and I wish you all a Chag Kasher Sameach and a good evening uh, or good afternoon, depending where you are in the world. Thank you very much. everyone. Have a wonderful Pesach. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you.